Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this uh, special edition of The Bunker. My name is Nick Cohen. I'm a columnist on The Observer, among many other things. And we try in our occasional series to bring you interesting authors whose books perhaps you haven't read and really should read. Uh, I am delighted, absolutely delighted, to have a guy who's influenced my thinking very much and made many people think about the modern world as well, Peter Pomerantsev, who is the author. Is This is not propaganda. It's a follow-up to his um, first book about Putin's Russia. And Peter looks at and explains, I think, better than any writer I know, the new world of um, Putinesque, Trumpian politics and how the web has been weaponized to allow all kinds of extremist causes. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure is all mine. Peter, if I can get right into it straight away, towards the end of This Is Not Propaganda, you say, I don't know how democracy can survive this. Do you believe that yourself or believe it in part? And if so, why? Well, I I, I do think we're, we're, we're facing... A structural crisis. I mean, the book is a fun book of stories. It's actually a family memoir wrapped into a bunch of stories from across the world. But it does have kind of a thesis at the center of it, which is basically that the way we've always defined a democratic information environment, which is something with a bit of freedom of speech, a bit of pluralism, marketplace of ideas, all these kind of like base things that were meant to define democracy and contrast it to authoritarian systems. All, all those things have been turned upside down. Um, and through the book, I kind of show how they've been turned upside down in, in various ways, from freedom of expression being used by all kinds of forces, authoritarian and non-authoritarian, to kind of you know swamp our world with cyber militias and troll armies and bots and trolls and all these things which drown out the truth in ways that, that aren't, actually censorship they're not censorship in the classical definition but they take advantage of freedom of expression to make democracy very hard to do and how pluralism tips over into polarization and so on and so forth so i do i do think there's a, a challenge it's a systemic challenge suppose someone was to say to you oh come on peter we had in the 1930s and 40s uh, as you well know from your own family history we had fascism we had communism mad, insane ideas that killed tens upon tens of millions of people. And that all happened without the web. In uh, The 70s were a decade of crisis. Again, that all happens without the web. We had a great global crash in 2008. The result, as after other great global crashes, is extremist politics. Aren't you just, you're just looking at the... Uh, at the fluttering surface of technology and not understanding the fundamental causes. How would you answer someone who, who came at you like that? Well, well, firstly, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't think it's an either or choice. I don't think there's a technological explanation and here's the cultural explanation. But in the book, actually, I do start with the technology and then I get into, into the deeper cultural issues. So I, I'd actually agree with that to a certain extent. However much we'd like to blame everything on Mark Zuckerberg, you can't, because I saw a lot of these pathologies and public opinion sprouting in Russia in the 1990s before we had the internet. So I don't think I, I actually would, would, would partly agree with somebody like that. But I don't think it's an either or thing. I think these things yeah. reinforce each other. 
But but you know, but, but it's talking about historically. I mean, the, my book is framed around. I compare the Cold War to now, and the responses we had to totalitarianism in the 20th century were the ones I taught. I just mentioned. So those were our kind of inoculations against totalitarian ideologies. We'd have freedom of expression and pluralism to balance out the kind of, you know, the closed um, Soviet, Nazi or, or Cambodian systems. Now we see those formulas being kind of, you know, like all historical formulas becoming a little bit worn out. What exactly is it you worry about? Is it about authoritarian state? Is it still a kind of Cold War mentality where Russia, China, great powers, enemy powers are using the web and the the avenues it opens to hurt us in the West? Or is it something deeper than that? I mean, do you still look at this as a geopolitical conflict? There's Britain, if you like, on one side, Russia on another or because you know, in the book, you you go off into the Philippines, which is not part of any type of Cold War, just to look at how scuzzy politicians, scuzzy movements can exploit this. Yeah, it's interesting. If if we take uh, and also, you know, you'd, you'd have to put America there as well, where you see all these oh, yeah. very, very, you know, deeply undemocratic informational practices being 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 developed as technologies, and you know, Facebook is is. I'm not saying it's, you know, it's, it's, if you think about how it's structured, it's deeply undemocratic. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, if we're going to use war metaphors, I think 30 years war is a better one than Cold War. You know, we have all these kind of like chaotic brigands and great powers and decaying empires and, and opportunists and mercenaries all at war with each other in this grand chaos. Are you, I mean, put another way, are you positing on one side conventional, sensible Westerners, such as the Listeners to this programme, forces of decency, and on the other, the extremists. And those extremists might be foreign powers, Russia, China. They might be political parties, movements that exploit this, like the Trump movement. Or what? even if we're in the 30 Years' War, we're, we're in a Brett play, and nothing makes a great deal of sense. How do you, which, who is fighting whom? What are the sides on this? So there I think we're in something eternal. And there I would agree. Let's define extremism. Extremism, as defined by extremists, theorists of extremism, it's not about stuff on the fringes. Extremism is dehumanizing the other. Yeah, It's this kind of very, very, very aggressive use of of identity to create in-groups and demonize the other. And in that sense, we're in something completely eternal. And it was there in the Cold War, Talking about, you know, authoritarian mentality and totalitarian psychology or something. And in that sense, yes, I agree. I completely agree. I think and that's an old battle, you know, and, and maybe an eternal oh, yeah. one. And, and yes, I completely agree that that is actually the, the essence of what we're in. And in that sense, it's something very, very old. Listen, I even go a little bit further than that. Um, have a look at both what the Chinese model of the Internet and sort of the sort of more ambitious side of the Silicon Valley ideology, sort of Peter Thiel, or, or maybe in some sense, some of the, some of the sort of like the, the, the fans of, of technology in Britain say, listen carefully to what they're saying. They're saying that, yes, we're going to take all your data. Yes, you're not going to have any rights, but we're going to con- create the ideal society. You're going to give us all your data. We're going to be in every bit of your life, not just your Facebook. We're going to be, you know, we're going to have computers tracking you, everything you do. But, yeah. but guys, 
We're going to find you the ideal home, the ideal wife, the ideal job, the ideal society. We're going to create smart cities which know everything about you and create the ideal society. It failed maybe in totalitarianism, but now we have the data and data, the logic of data means centralization and guidance from above. That's what they're saying. And essentially what they're saying is a very old argument about the human, that people are just too stupid and too limited and too small to make decisions like that. And and actually, this is an old fight about, you know, actually what works better, um, a kind of totalitarian approach or, or a democratic approach. You know, so, so I actually think we're, we're into a huge debate about what the human is, which is a very, very old debate, but just in this new technological iteration. Well, it's, it's, it's a very moot point at the moment, isn't it, Peter? Because... Liberal societies used to be able to say, look at the Soviet Union. It failed. You know, I, I lived through the 80s and communism, socialism was failing as an idea before the Berlin Wall went down. That's a crucial thing about it. All over the world, people were people who perhaps would once have at least thought of communism, even as a competitor, saying this is hopeless. But China is now off, offering a very successful highly authoritarian alternative to a West that, frankly, reels from one crisis to another. The the alternative, I don't think at the moment, is even China and the West when it comes to this issue. It's China versus Taiwan. It's China versus Estonia. It's these countries that are creating tech democracies and are thinking about how you can use very, very advanced technology and combine that with democratic values. And we are seeing a competition between if we're just talking about the information environment, it's just because that's what my book's about. Um, we are talking the emergence of kind of democratic practices and authoritarian practices. And the authoritarian ones, let's take sort of, you know, facial recognition or something. A lot of countries want to do that. They're taking Chinese tech and they want to have that very invasive facial recognition control over society. Serbia is buying it. I think some European countries want to buy it. So we're talking about different practices and which ones are going to be more prevalent. I'd like to be positive. I do think, you know... I do think there is a shift now in understanding that we need a different relationship with our information and with our with our kind of digital future. But it's a real, everything's in flux. There's a chance for democracies to come together around an alternative vision. But, but the alternative vision isn't US versus China. It's Taiwan, I'd say, versus China. I mean, Taiwan is the country that's gone the furthest in trying to think about how you use technology in democratic ways. Just so I understand what you're saying as as much as the listeners, can we split that authoritarian technology versus democratic technology up and explain it a bit? Um, For instance, suppose I were running a Russian troll farm or suppose I were a Trumpian or whatever and I wanted to achieve a propaganda coup on Twitter, Facebook. How how do people go about doing it? And how should people recognize it when it's happening? Well, this is the problem. We can't because, I mean, let's go to basic, uh, very simple human rights, but freedom of expression. Freedom of expression isn't just the right to sort of say what you want, which we really have a lot of these days in a lot of countries. Um, It's the right to receive information as well. We don't know when we're online at the moment whether what we see is a real person or an army of, of trolls or a cyber militia. We don't know why algorithms show us one thing and not another. We don't know why Google is putting some things up there and not other things. 
Um, so look, if you're in a country like Russia and China, those tech companies are controlled by the state to a greater or lesser extent, and they're kind of rigging the algorithm so they see what so you see what they want you to see. But even in a democracy, it's very, very easy to game all those things. And, and the fact is, we just have no understanding of what we see. So that's already not particularly democratic. Then there's control over your own data. We have GDPR, which is a first step of saying how your data can be used, but it's still very, very thin. We should really have much, much more control of our data and be able to say, look, I don't mind if my data is used for health research. That's fine. I don't want it to use by, be used by any political parties, actually. When we see mm. you know, advertising targeted at us, we don't know if which of our own data is being used to target us. I mean, are we seeing a message because, you know, Cambridge Analytica or a less bullshitty company has profiled us in some way? Is our neighbor seeing the same thing? Peter, we're talking as with, and forgive me if it's my interpretation, we're talking as if there are sinister actors and, if you like, the cousins public. But yet, you know, I, from watching uh, the Trump movements online, I thought, I thought that struck me was, you know, no one in the Republican Party needed to marshal armies or martial opinions or issue instructions their supporters would do what needed to be done without prompting and without instruction they would go on the attack without waiting for you know any sign from trump this is what they should do that they would do it anyway is partisanship now enough that people you know without payment without instruction just produce the propaganda anyway so when we're talking about kind of these online mobs, there's different things. There's the Russian version, which is troll farms. Yeah, that's kind of paid. It's like a PR company. Actually, the kind of incentivization, just point people towards a target. That's very common. We see that in Turkey. We see that in Venezuela, actually. And the rewards for that are many. It could be emotional satisfaction going after somebody. It can be a way to climb up the system. You don't have to be paid. We know for certain, I mean, hold on, when they're, Nick, you know, much more than I do. A lot of people who look at online propaganda talk about that, how the art of it is really is really just just being able to incentivize and then letting it happen and making it yeah. as natural as possible. That's that's really the art of skillful propaganda. But but then we had to start thinking about um, you know to what extent is the design of platforms is the design of our online world helping this kind of polarization? You know when you have an economy based based on likes and shares, which tends to reinforce sort of group identities. Um, you know mm-hmm. you. you Say things in order to get lots of likes and shares. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, Peter, if, if I'm attacking the Johnson government and I put a fuck in the tweet, I know, you know, it's fucking Johnson rather than Johnson. I might think if I do that, I'll get more likes. The more extreme you are, the more likely you are to get uh, to get to get your partisans, your core vote, cheering you on. And that's why we're all fucked. You know, the, the social media that really dominates at the moment is, is based around that. So that's really, is that inspiring and, and goading on these types of kind of like sort of mob mentality? You know, even, even I wasn't the first person to notice it, even the kind of the thumbs up, thumbs down, or just the thumbs up of, of Facebook. It's yeah. a bit like a coliseum. There's already something very mob mentality above it. Do you think American democracy is, is screwed now? Not just the racial tensions, which God knows have been there since 1776, and the effects of the crash and the effects of a generation of working-class people who've never had a pay rise in real terms. But it's screw, technology is screwing America. Well, in America, it starts 
before the online world. It starts with, you know, the very well-documented rise of the kind of the right-wing echo chamber through, you know, the recently deceased Rush Limbaugh and then Fox. But then, I mean, there's enough research to show that was already there and it was pretty extreme. But then yeah. social came in and radicalized it further because Breitbart and others, they go further to the right than Fox and they drag Fox with them. And there's been quite a lot of research showing that. So, so you already had a kind of a pretty fucked up situation. And then I think then online dynamics went and just supercharged it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, perhaps I'm misinterpreting the past, but people used to look at America or at least elements within America as much from American culture as from American politics, more so, I would say, and see it as a kind of inspiration or as a kind of guide to the future. And now you look at, well, I at least look at America and think we must not become like that. It's very interesting, isn't it? So, so I, I grew up in the 80s and for definitely for me, and it's, you know, America had um, types of ice cream and toys and they had mo- the movies came out there first. Remember that sense? Oh my God, the movies come out in America, but it hasn't come out mm. here yet. And I definitely grew up uh, with that. And so it's interesting. I recently got offered a job in America, which, which I've taken and just can't move there because of the pandemic. And for me, because I'm a child of the 80s, I was like, of course I go to America. If you get a job offer from America, you go. And my kids who are like 11, they're like, isn't that the place with Trump and guns? Why are we going there? Why aren't we staying in London? They're still excited. So there is still a pull, judging by them, but they're much more ambivalent. I mean, they still do watch a lot of American stuff. It is a, an American-saturated culture. So they are excited, but it's much more ambivalent than, than our attitudes. Something has clearly changed. And I don't know if you get that back once you've lost that. I don't know if that's, that's something that's recoverable. Do you see online culture in Britain as somehow uh, better. The reason I'm asking is I have been very, very pleasantly surprised and, in fact, delighted about how little impact, apparently, anti-vax lunacy has had on the British population, that the take-up for the vaccine is just huge. And despite all the best efforts of Russia and Piers Corbyn and various scoundrel right-wing journalists, People are following the science, but perhaps I'm being naive, and uh, perhaps you ought to uh, douse this very uncharacteristic patriotic feeling I'm I'm experiencing right now. Well, listen. I mean, science um, hasn't been politicised here the way it has been in America, and climate change as well, where there's broad agreement between conservatives and whatever Labour voters about climate change being really important. In America, you know, that's become one of the biggest divides. In America, you have this hyper-partisanship that, that has really taken over scientific discourse. I don't think that's happened here. Um, be very actually, Germany and France have got much higher levels of skepticism about vaccines, but there might be cultures, culturally specific reasons for that. So I don't, what's been nice, what's, what I find very fascinating here is whether the very American version of culture will take off here. And there's clearly a lot of people who want to do that. So all the stuff about complaining about, I don't know, cancel culture on campus and just anti-university discourse per se. They don't know all these tropes that we've seen from American partisanship. What of that is going to work here and take off here? I think most of it won't work here. I think most people are just going to be very, very confused about what you're talking about. Largely because I think we have class as this much more ancient way of organizing ourselves don't need all that stuff we already have our you know all these love hate relationships yeah we know uh, who to hate already we don't need a bunch yeah. of yanks to tell us 
Exactly. So I don't know to what extent, but 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 clearly for the current Conservative Party, the only way you can unite, keep that Brexit, you know, keep that. How do you keep the red wall and and the ham, and the Shire vote united? Is around some sort of culture argument. I mean, it's clearly not going to be an economic argument. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll see where Johnson. Interestingly, is there are people in Downing Street, ex spikes, you know, RCP people pushing that. Johnson yeah. is quite reluctant. I think he realizes how it might not play, particularly if Keir Starmer is, isn't going to pick up the ball and come and play on the pitch with him, which he clearly isn't. But we'll see. Um, Peter, we're running out of time. So very quickly, and try to keep this as practical as possible. What steps should we take to have a more democratic, a more Estonian or Taiwanese uh, internet media culture? It's very, very simple. I mean, number one, regulation. Um, the internet has to become, we have to have public oversight of how it all works, of how content moderation works, of how algorithms work. We have to have enough transparency to be able to see who is targeting us, why, and so forth. That's the regulatory bit. It's actually very simple. You just have to, you just have to do it. And that means taking on the companies. Um, number two is reinventing or not reinventing, but adding to our idea of public service media. Um, actually, going back to the origins of it, um, the idea of public service media was to create a media for the public, as in creating a public sphere, creating a national, you know, full, free and fair national conversation. We we have that legacy in the BBC. The BBC hasn't taken the leap into digital. They completely missed the boat. There are actually plans, I've heard in the grapevine, of creating like a BBC social media project in the 1990s, and they were blocked because they were told that it would get in the way of the market. And instead, we have... Twitter and Facebook defining our public sphere, which is yeah. so that's re- just reinvigorating public service media for the digital age. That's number two. And number three, connected to that, a lot more kind of tech design. We have something about what are the online communities that create resilient democracies? That's what tiny winnies are getting to do a lot of. How do we have like town hall? What is the online version of a town hall debate about, you know, uh, all sorts of issues from how to fix uh, schools through to, you know, the federal model for Britain. How do we start having these conversations online so that it's a real democracy? Just having question time once a week is not going to be enough. No, really. I mean, to me, to me, that kind of BBC culture has been part of the problem rather than part of the solution because the people behind it and things like, oh, I don't know, parts of Radio 5, the daily politics, are no different from people in China and Russia, except they live by clicks. They want they want yeah. fake controversy for clicks uh, when the opposite is needed. Peter, that as always, I'm afraid uh, I, my screen is flashing at me. We're, we're running out of time. So uh, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure having you. And This Is Not Propaganda is published by Faber and Faber, as is Peter's previous book about his time in Russia, Nothing is True, Everything is Possible, which I recommend wholeheartedly as well. It was a book that made me understand, more than any other, made me understand Putin's Russia and its cynicism and its success as well, the success of the regime in maintaining itself in power. This has been The Bunker. We come daily to your phone, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Tuesday is an extra special long edition to really tear apart a big issue of the day. 
If you like this, um, please could you consider signing up to our Patreon subscriber or liking us on your Apple or Android provider. If you didn't like it, then please just keep quiet and don't tell anybody. My name's Nick Cohen. Thank you very much. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>